Today's daf is Kaf Aleph in Masachet Betza. We will begin from Kaf Amud Bet where we left off. We were uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 lines from the bottom of Kaf Amud Bet where it says, Yibailu, Ledivrei Omer, Unedavot, En Kurevin, Biyom Tov. According to the opinion that you cannot bring personal obligations, such as vowed offerings or voluntary offer- offerings. And we've learned before that the difference between the two is a vowed offering is that you said, Hare Alai, I take responsibility to bring such and such korban. Nidavot is that you'd say, Hare Zeh, behold, this animal is an offering. Either way, it's voluntarily in, uh, created. So you can't bring them on Yom Tov. According to the opinion that you can't bring them. So, Avar V'Shachat, what happens if there was a mistake and they went and they slaughtered that korban anyway? So my, what do we do? Rava says you can throw the blood on the altar and with the with the, the intent that basically uh, you're going to go and eat some of the meat later, so uh, it will be okay. Um, and and that justifies the uh, retroactively the fact that this uh, that this um, uh, korban was brought because now you'll eat the meat on Yom Tov and it won't be so bad. Even if you're not going to eat the meat. The fact is that in order, as she says, in other words, in order to qualify the korban, since you have to put the emorin, you're going to put the uh, parts of the offering on the mizbeach. It doesn't have to be uh, at night, but it could be, you know, meaning uh, uh, the, the uh, normally you do it right away after you bring the korban, but you can do it all night long, which means to say that, let's say you slaughtered this korban on Yom Tov, um, you would put the uh, pieces of the cough, of, of the offering that need to go on the altar, you'd put them after the Yom Tov, because that's not necessary to be done on the Yom Tov. You do it after the Yom Tov, as she says. You can wait until afterwards and put them up afterwards. But the point is that even if there's not going to be meat eaten, according to Rabbi Rav Huna, you could still finish the korban that you started. Okay? Now, my uh, benayu, what's the difference between them? Oshavad. If the the meat became tamei or it got lost because Ravalo Zarik, according to Ravad, the only justification is that you're going to be able to eat the meat. And since it became uh, it became tamei or it got lost, so therefore uh, uh, there is no meat, so you can't throw the blood. The according to Ravavuna, the whole objective is that once you already slaughtered the korban, you might as well finish it properly and let the korban be considered a kasher korban bediavad. So you do throw the blood even though the meat is gone. Now you have to raise an objection. That if you had the the <coughs> the sheep that accompany the loaves of Shavuot, and you slaughtered them shelolishman, you slaughtered them not with the proper intent. So what happens is that normally we say that if a korban is slaughtered not with its proper intent, it is uh, you you had in mind for a different korban than it was supposed to be. So what happens is that the korban is kasher, but the Owners do not get credit. So what happens in this case is the obligation of Kifseyat Tzeret was not fulfilled because the wrong intent was applied. So the question is, but now you have a Koban there. Or you slaughtered them too early, before Shavuot started, or afterwards. So what do you do? The blood should be thrown, and the meat should be eaten. If it fell on Shabbat, you shouldn't throw the blood because now you can't eat the meat, obviously, because you can't cook the meat, right? And if you did throw it, so that it's going to be accepted as with, with the intent, because you have the intent of burning the, uh, uh, the uh, parts of the sacrifice after the, after the Yom Tov, after the Shabbat is over. So you see from that that it says, 
if he threw the blood. In other words, in the first half, it just said that if you had this case where the Korban is essentially not fulfilling its obligation, but the, it's already been done, so you throw the blood and, uh, and you, uh, you, know, you, eat the, uh, you eat the meat, right? But if it was Shabbat where the meat can't be eaten, it says don't throw the blood. And if you did, then B'diavat would be okay because you have in mind to offer the offering after the Shabbat. So what do you see from here? That's only B'diavat. But Bishlam, that makes sense according to Ravah Nicha, because Ravah said that really you can only throw the blood in this case if there's going to be meat that you're going to eat. In a case where there's no meat that you're going to eat, it's only, then, uh, then you wouldn't lechatchila, you wouldn't ideally throw the blood in that case. The Gemara leaves it as a kashya. It's difficult for Ravah Baravuna because according to Ravah Baravuna, if you slaughtered a kor- these korbanot and then, and, and it was done shilolishma, as long as there are uh, parts to the Qurban that are going to be bought, put on the altar after the Shabbat or after the Yom Tov, you should just throw the blood. Lechatchila, you should throw the blood. But according to, you know, whether the meat will be available for consumption that day or not. But according to, uh, but according to this Braita, this Braita is saying that no, you shouldn't throw the blood really if there's no meat available. If you did, now the fact that there are imurin, the fact that there are parts of the Koban that can be put up after the Yom Tov is sort of a retroactive justification, but lechatchila you shouldn't do that. That supports the view of Ravah, because Ravah is the one that says that lechatchila you only throw the blood if there's meat to be eaten. If there isn't, then you can't. Okay, bediavad. If you still did, so now you can use the justification that there is meat left over. Now the Gemara says, "Vibai demash ane shavut shavut Shabbat mishavut Yom Tov." Alternatively, we could defend Rabbi Barafuna and say that the reason why, that even he would agree that on Yom Tov, if there are emorim that are waiting to be offered on the mizbeach afterwards, you can use that as a lechatchila. Ideally, justification to throw the blood of this korban that shouldn't have been offered, but. On a Shabbat, where it's more strict, he would say that even there, you shouldn't throw the blood. If you did, now you can use the justification that the korbanot are going to be put on the altar after Shabbat. But that would only be about Shabbat, because where it's more strict. We're even more strict on Shabbat than we are on Yom Tov, according to that. Okay, now, we want to ask, Rav Avia Sabat asked Rav Vuna the following question. Let's say you have an animal that is half belongs to a non-Jew and half of it belongs to a Jew. They're partners. Can you slaughter it on Yom Tov? Okay. He said, it's permitted. So he said to him, What's the difference between this? And Nidarim and Nidavot. In other words, part of the Nedir and Nidava of the Koban Shlamim, we're assuming it is, goes to Hashem, goes to the Mizbeach, part of it goes to you. So here, part of the animal goes to the Goy, part of it goes to you. What's the difference? Amalei or Vaparach, he said to him, a raven just flew by. Okay? Meaning to say that he changed the subject. He didn't want to discuss it. He didn't want to go into it. Kinafak, when he went out, Amalei Rabbabrei. So Rabbah, his son, said to him, after. Rav Avyasaba. So we had Rav Avyasaba asked the question of of Rav Huna, and uh, and and then Rav, and then when he he gave him the answer, that and then he asked him what is between this and Nedarim and Nedavot, and he didn't want to answer him. Right, Rav Huna didn't want to answer. Him. So Rabba, the son of Rav Huna, said, "Isn't this Rav Avyasaba the Mishtabach leemar begavidig avarabau? Isn't this the great Rava Ravya Saba?" That uh, that the master praises him as being so great. Who uh, Amarle? He said it. Uh, sorry, that he, that he said the mishtabach mor begavei the gavarabahu that you always say he's such a great person. Amarle uma evile. What can I do? 
So basically, Rabbah, the son of Rav, when I was asking him, why didn't he answer? You say that Rav Yasabah is so great. Why didn't you answer his question if he's so great? Why did you tell him uh, there's a raven passing by and distract him? So he said, what can I do? Today I am. This is talking about the person who's becoming faint. This is in Shira Shirim that uh, she says, I'm becoming faint. Please give me uh, to drink. Please give me some uh, fruit. I need something so that I don't faint. So he says, She says, I just finished giving a very long drasha to the people. I became tired and worn out. And therefore I need to eat something before I start answering questions. I didn't get a chance to eat yet. I'm too tired. So, and he asked me something that requires a reason. What is the actual reason? And this is the Gemara speaking, obviously, because Rafuna said he was too tired. But the Gemara explains it. What's the difference between an animal that's half owned by a Gentile and half owned by a Jew that you're allowed to slaughter it? Because you can only slaughter an animal. It's, a, it's a all or nothing. If you want to have even one piece of meat from that animal, you have to slaughter the whole animal. You can't slaughter it in part. So therefore, you have to slaughter it. And the fact that, the, that part of it belongs to the non-Jew, that's not your problem. But nidarim and nidavot, it really is all for Hashem, the Korban. Hashem gives part of it to the Kohanim, so to speak, but it's not for them, it's all for Hashem. It's not really for them. And therefore, whatever is gotten from the Koban for eating of human beings, that is gotten uh, only from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's only gotten from Hashem. It really goes all to Hashem. And that's why you're not allowed to slaughter Nidarim and Nidavot on uh, Yom Tov. Uh, because it's really all for Hashem and not really primarily for you. When it comes to an animal that's owned partially by a Gentile, partially by a Jew, you can slaughter it on Yom Tov because it's impossible to have a kazayit of meat without somebody doing shechita. It's all or nothing. But let's say you have a dough, half owned by a non-Jew, half owned by a Jew, you can't bake it on Yom Tov. Because you could separate it into two different parts in the dough, in the kneading process and just make the part that's yours. We learn that the dough of the dogs, the dough that was fed to the dogs, when the shepherds also eat from it, so then it has to have chala separated from it. You can make eruv with it. In other words, when you have to make eruv using a certain type of bread, you want to make eruv to allow people to carry in a courtyard and so on that we've learned about many times. Or you want to unite members of different courtyards so they can share an alleyway and carry in that alleyway on Shabbat. You can say you can say you can say in other words, it's considered bread 100% and you can even make a zimun if three people ate from it and so on. And if it happens to be matzah and not chametz, then a person could even use it for Pesach. The point is that even though you're sharing it with the dog, since there are human beings eating it, it still retains its status as bread. Now according to your logic, that why can't I bake the dough that is owned by the Jew and the non-Jew on Yom Tov because I could separate it into two doughs. I could do that with the dogs also. Why am I allowed, Why am I saying that I'm not allowed? I'm saying I'm allowed to bake it on Yom Tov even though part of it belongs to the dogs. But I shouldn't be because I should be required to separate it into two pieces in order to bake it on Yom Tov. The answer is that a dog's dough is different 
because it's always it's possible that you'll be able to give them something else and keep the entire dough for the humans. And so therefore it's all considered human food, so you can bake the whole thing thinking humans are going to eat the whole thing. But does Rav Chista really make rulings based on what could be? We learned, if a person bakes from Yom Tov to Chol, if a person bakes in Yom Tov for weekday use, Rav Chista says you get whipped for that because he's violating Yom Tov. Rav Chista says you don't get whipped. Rav Chista says you don't get whipped. Because Rav Chista says we don't say since, in other words, we know he's making it for the weekday. So we don't say, since if guests came right now, they would eat it right now on the Yom Tov. So we could say that he's justified in making it on Yom Tov. No, since he's intending for Chol, he's intending for Chol. Right? On the other hand, right? So on the other hand, Rabbah says, because Rabbah says, since you could say, maybe, even though his intent is that he's baking for weekday, but... If a uh, person, if guests came right now, they would eat it right now. So then it's okay. Right? So what do you see from there? You see that Rav Chista is not interested in what you might be able to do. He's interested in what you will do. And here you're saying the fact that you might be able to give the dog something else defines what it act, what the situation actually is. No. We're not talking about a theoretical thing of maybe you'll come across some meat and be able to give meat to the dogs instead. Therefore, the entire dough is considered to be potentially edible by the humans. No, we're talking about where you actually have the nevela. And therefore, if you wanted to give it to the dogs, you could. It's right there. And that's why it's not like guests that, oh, maybe guests will come. Right now, there are no guests, but maybe they'll come. No, we're saying you have the meat right there to give to the dogs. And, the, and it's your choice to give it to the dogs or not. <clears throat> and therefore the entire dough is really under the auspices of the humans and they could bake the entire things for themselves even if they end up giving some fit to the dogs because they could have actually kept the whole things for themselves. They asked Rav one of the following questions. That sometimes they would have these occupying Gentile armies and they would force the Jewish people to bake them stuff. That happened in the ancient world all the time that armies would come to a town and they would basically come in near the town. So they, so they came and they said, alai, the, the group of people, they, there was a group of uh, village uh, Jews that their obligation, that the king made them responsible for preparing the food for the chayalim, for the non-Jewish soldiers. And it fell out on a Yom Tov. So he said, what should they do? Ma'ole fota b'yom tov. Amalo chazena yavule riftali yanukav lo kapdei kol chadav chadav chazena yanukav sherei. Filav asur. He said to him, if you're allowed to take a little bit of the bread that you baked for these soldiers and give it to a child, so you could say that every bit of that bread really belongs to the child, potentially, and therefore you could bake all of that knowing that some of it, any one of those pieces could go to the child. Even though in the, in the end, lemase, it's going to go to these non-Jewish soldiers, it's okay. It happened one time that Shimona Timni came to the Beit Midrash Late, he missed one, he, he missed the afternoon before Yom Tov. He came the next day. And Amrulo, and they said to him, Amar, so Mitzao, uh, he came, he, he didn't, Shaloba, Emish, Beda Midrash, Bishachrit, Mitzao, Rabbi Yudab, and Bava. In the morning he came, and you, Rabbi Yudab, and Bava, Sam. Amarlo, he said to him, Nebalo, about the Emish, Beda Midrash. Why didn't you come yesterday, the Beit Midrash, yesterday afternoon? Amarlo, he said to him, Baleshet Balirino, Ubiksha, Lachtof, Kola Ir. A, uh, a group of marauding uh, soldiers came and, uh, and they demanded that we, they wanted to take, uh, to, to plunder the entire city. 
And so then what happened? What we did was, we slaughtered a calf for them. So what we did was, we, we fed them, and we, we dismissed them in peace. In other words, we, they, we placated them by slaughtering a calf and giving it to them. I'm worried if maybe your benefit is outweighed by your loss. Because you're not allowed to slaughter an animal and prepare it on Yom Tov for for idolaters, only for Jews. And you went and you gave it to these non-Jews. So I said, But didn't we just say a second ago that if you're going to bake something for the soldiers and it's possible for you to eat from it, so then it's not really considered that you're baking it for them because you have the possibility of eating from it too and it wouldn't be makpiri, it wouldn't be particular. said, so, no, it's different because over there, it was an egel toifa, it was a non-kosher animal. They couldn't have eaten from it. So therefore, it was really purely done for the non-Jews and that's why it was a problem. But it still is good for klavim. The dogs could eat it, right? So therefore, you're at least doing it for something that could be good for the dogs and it should be allowed on Yom Tov. Tanahi, that's a machloket tanaim, ditanya. Because it says anything that could be eaten by a soul, the chol nefesh, is what you're allowed to do on Yom Tov. Now the question is, what does it mean by a soul? From the fact that it says nefesh, it says soul, I would have thought even the soul of an animal. As it says... Elsewhere in the Torah, when it talks about damaging or killing an animal, it says, If someone strikes the soul of an animal, he has to pay for it. So, that's why the Pazuk comes and says, which teaches you what? For you and not dogs, in other words, Rabbi Yosek Lili says that every soul does not include animal soul here. According to Rabbi Akiva, <coughs> even an animal soul is included. And uh, even an animal you can cook for on Yom Tov. You're not allowed to cook for idolaters, but you're allowed to cook for animals. Where do you get this distinction that you include dogs, but you exclude not, uh, idol, idol worshippers? The answer is that I exclude the non-Jews, because they're not dependent on you for food. They don't need to come to you for food. I include the klavim, the dogs, because they're dependent on you for food. According to Rabbi Yossi, who says that you're only allowed to do melachan yom tov for yourselves and not for dogs. How can we take these um, like uh, pits of dates and throw them to the to the animals on the Yom Tov. How are we allowed to do that? Really, once we've eaten them, eh, they're only edible now for uh, for animals and it should really be mukteh because we're not supposed to prepare food for animals on Yom Tov. So he says, because you could also use it for burning and since you're allowed to make fire on Yom Tov, you could use the seeds of the dates to make fire. So it's still not mukteh. That's good for the dry ones. What if they're still moist? said to him, if you have a really big fire, you could use the moist ones too. So therefore they're not mukteh. <coughs> it's not because of the animal that it's not mukteh. It's because of the potential use in a fire. What about on Shabbat? We also throw these uh, date pits to the animals on Shabbat and you're not allowed to obviously make a fire on Shabbat. So it says, it says, 
what you can do is you can use bread to uh, uh, to move it like Shmuel said. Because Shmuel said a person can do whatever he wants. He can move things around that would normally be muktzeh using bread because the bread, he doesn't touch it directly. Uh, the muktzeh thing directly, so he's allowed to do it. And that's what they should do with the deep pits also. That this is different than what Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi says. Because Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, uh, meaning what Rav Huna said, are earlier that if the if you cook for the non-Jews, uh, as long as they wouldn't be makpid, they wouldn't be particular about you feeding it to your child or you eating some of it, so then it's not considered that you're cooking it purely for the non-Jews and it would be okay. But Rabbi Yosho ben Levi says, no, even when that's not the case, even when you could eat all of it if you wanted, you're still not supposed to prepare for a non-Jew. And uh, we learned that because he says you can invite a non-Jew for Shabbat, but not for Yom Tov, because you might come to make more food for the non-Jew just for the non-Jew because you know he's coming. Even inviting Nanju for Shabbat is a problem because because after they drink the wine, uh, the wine becomes it becomes non-kosher wine because the Gentile handled it and drank from it and we're afraid that he might have had idolatrous thoughts about it and therefore it becomes Asur. So we can't even touch his cup after he uses it because it has wine that is now prohibited. So it says, what about our own cups? When we drink and we leave dregs at the bottom of the cup, it's also useless. And therefore should be moktzetu. Now it says, Chickens can eat our leftover wine that's in the bottom of our cup. But same thing with the nanju. If the nanju leaves a little bit of wine in the bottom of his cup, true that we're not allowed to drink it because it's prohibited to be dr- for us to drink it, but uh, animals will drink it. So it says, so, so the problem is that uh, when it comes to, that's Isur Hana'a. Their wine is Asur even in benefit. So therefore we're not supposed to even allow our animals to partake of it. And, um, and that's why it's fully Muktzeh in the case of their wine dregs that are left over. So Gemara says, uh, Why can't we pick it up because it's in the cup? We're really picking up the cup. We're not picking up the wine directly. Didn't we say, according to Rava, that you're allowed to uh, move the cold pan because of the ashes that are in it? Because you could use those ashes for covering things that, that are dirty and things like that. They have a practical use on Shabbat. So you're allowed to move it around, even though there are wood chips in there. Um, that would be muktzeh, but you're right. Even though it has on it wood chips, you're allowed to move it around because it has the ashes on there. So too, you should be able to move the cup um, with the, uh, uh, you know, with the uh, wine of the non-Jew in it because you're moving the cup. You're not directly touching the. Um, you're not directly touching the uh, the wine. So the Gemara says again. That, that's not talking about a thing that's prohibited in benefit. The wood chips that are on there are not prohibited in benefit. Here we're talking about things that are prohibited in benefit. It's a more strict kind of a mukte, and that's why you're not allowed to move this cup at all. It should be like a basket of ec- a, a, a bowl of excrement. If you have a chamber pot that becomes dirty, that was, that was what they used to do in the old days, would have these little pots that they would go to the bathroom in them. They were dirty, they were smelly. You were allowed to move it, even though technically excrement would be mukte because it has no function on Shabbat or Yom Tov. You're allowed to move it to make a pleasant environment. 
So you should say the same thing about the leftover wine in their cups. True that you're allowed to move something that's disgusting or distasteful away on Shabbat and Yom Tov, even though it's something that has no use. But why would we create a situation where we know the non-Jew is going to produce that and then for, and force us to move it out of the way? We shouldn't create the situation to begin with. So that's why I said you shouldn't invite non-Jews for Shabbat at all. Rava was walking along with with Mor Shmuel, and he was saying a drasha. He was saying over a, uh, a a thought, a Torah thought, and he said, "You're allowed to invite an Andrew for Shabbat, but not Yom Tov." The reason being, because you might make more food just for him. Um, when it came to Mor Morzutra. If a nanju would come over on Yom Tov, Amulah, they would say to him, Ini chalach b'may d'richalan mudafila, t'chay d'ra adata didach lo t'chinan. They would say to the nanju, if you're happy with what we've already prepared, please come in, you're welcome to come. But if you're not happy with it, we can't do any extra effort today just on your behalf. We're not allowed to because it's against our religious code. So the point is you're not supposed to invite the nanju, but if the nanju shows up, you're allowed to have him stay just with the caveat with the condition that they understand that you're not allowed to do anything more on their behalf in terms of preparing the food. Next, Mishnah. A person should not heat up hot water just for his feet. In other words, to wash himself. Unless they are capable of being drunk. Because we know that Beit Shammai holds literally that the Pasuk means that you're only allowed to do Malachah that you're going to use for eating, not for washing the body. Beit allows you to heat up food to wash your feet. Person can make a uh, big um, bonfire and he can heat himself up by it. Where did the Mishnah throw in this last clause about making the uh, about making the bonfire? Right? Who was that going like? Do we say Is it really according to everyone? Because it could be that why did Beit Shammai prohibit you from heating up water to wash your feet? Because that's just one part of your body. It doesn't nourish the entire body like eating. But maybe a madura, maybe a fire, uh, a uh, you know, a bonfire that heats up your entire body, maybe it would allow that, the Beit Shammai. So it says, or maybe, it could be, or it could be that Beit Shammai doesn't allow that either. He doesn't allow you to heat something up just to warm your body. And he disagrees with that last clause. That last clause is only Beit Hillel. Tashema, come in here. Beit Shammai Omrim, lo yase adam madura, bilchanem kenegda, o Beit Hillel matarin. We see explicitly in the Brayta that Beit Shammai says a person should not make a bonfire to heat up to. Beit Hillel says he can. And that the reason being again, because according to Beit Shammai, one is not allowed to, uh, to perform a mlacha on the, uh, on the Yom Tov unless it's connected to food and not something connected to heating the body or uh, washing the feet. Now, the, um, the interesting question is that, uh, and so therefore Beit Shammai says, only if you did it in such a way that it could allow also for, uh, for food enjoyment, such as wash, heating up water that is capable of being drunk and then using it to wash your feet, that Beit Shammai says is okay. But doing it purely uh, with the intent and a type of water and a type of situation where it is for washing the feet, that would not be a according to Beit Shammai.